Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Now, as we get started, I need to know a couple of things. One, is the Dolph Lundgren movie that you imagine Storm is thinking of with the bazooka, in fact, Dolph Lundgren's original starring role as the Punisher, Maria Lewis, as we start off chapter 13 of It Came From The Deep, holy shit. Hitting it hard and fast and early with the good questions. Number one, yes, Blake. (laughs) You're right. You know me so well. This is why you're my best friend. (laughs) You're my best friend. My best friend. She a real bad bitch. Got her own money. She don't need no nigga on the dance floor. She had two, three drinks. Now she's twerking. She throw it out and come back in. I had just interviewed Dolph Lundgren at the time as I was doing edits on It Came From The Deep. And so I fully had like, I, I'll I'll put up a link to that article. I'll make a note of that now in case people want to read it. Cause Dolph Lundgren, let me tell you, so interesting. What a fascinating man. I really didn't expect to have an in-depth conversation with him. I was saying to him, like, what's it like to be back in Sydney? Because that's where they filmed The Punisher, the movie that he was in. That was not great. (laughs) Um, Based on the Marvel comic book character, um, which, you know, gets many different iterations then with my, like, uh, my clitoral soul uh, attractor, John Bernthal, but also oh Lexi God. Alexander with Punisher Warzone. <laughs> but um, so he had come to Sydney because when he was a teenager, he was just like, the only way I'm going to be able to see the world is if I get a scholarship somewhere. And he was really smart. So he got a scholarship to Sydney University to get, do a master's degree in, I want to say it was like some very specific type. It might've been physics, but it was like some very specific type of like in Maria translation. I was like complicated math and or science. (laughs) (laughs) So he was here in Sydney studying that at Sydney uni working as a bouncer uh, for like to like, you know, pay his bills. He was on a scholarship and and, um, Grace Jones was performing at the club that he was bouncing at. She walked out of the club, pointed at him and said, you. And then he's like, and then next thing you know, it was 10 years later. (laughs) And that's how he started in the industry because he was the hot guy that Grace Jones dated for 10 years. And they were like super tight. They did many shoots together. They had these amazing bodies. Some of the hottest photos that have ever existed are Grace Jones and Dolph Lundgren peaked together, both wearing like matching leather pants. It's, it's some, it's unbelievable stuff. It's just unbelievable. It's like (laughs) peak, it's peak interracial excellence, honestly, like truly, they should have just been together forever, but can you hurry up and make a coffee table book called interracial excellence, which is just a compilation of all those pictures and great pictures of interracial excellence through the ages. The the big famous pictures of them are from a coffee table book from a really famous photographer. Yeah. So that like that beautiful shot of like her reaching up and his cheekbones is from a coffee table book that was put out. Like I think maybe four or five years into their relationship, but what's really interesting because I asked him, I, I was like, you know, you were really young when you guys first started dating and you're dating not only like a strong outspoken feminist, but a dark skinned black woman navigating a sexist and racist industry. Like how did that shape your view on things? And he started talking about feminism to me and we got really in depth about like, cause he has, I can't remember if it's three or four daughters, but he, all his kids are, are daughters. I think he's had got an, he's got like, he split up from his wife and has like a new wife now who's, pregnant and she's like you know classic like 25 years younger than him god bless god bless hollywood um but (laughs) it was just like a really fascinating discussion and it was just perhaps maybe not what i was expecting i wasn't expecting him to be a dumbass but just somebody who like a john a jean-claude van damme type somebody who's very much known for their 
physicality and he was much closer I think in intellect and um, just like his hunger for learning and different ideas like it reminded me more of an Arnold Schwarzenegger type than a um, you know a himbo if you will like a, a Jean-Claude Van Damme or a well, we start- Stallone no disrespect Stallone smart but in different ways we started this conversation about a himbo's choice of a reference. Um, uh, uh, and I think that's the perfect way to go into this chapter. It is the final chapter. If it came from the D, our boy, Travis Tishop done fucked up calling universities incorrectly, getting them caught by the sneaky ponytail. Fuck Derek. We are on the run. We're looking for Derek? a ute. We're looking for a ute that can be filled up with some kind of water. Um, for anyone who watched Sequest DSV or any of the Steve Irwin shows, we know how to transport <laughs> aquatic humanoids slash dolphins slash um, marine animals from uh, one place to another. And we're heading for... All you need is a ute with a tray and some fucking tarp, baby, and you're good to go. You're good to go. That's so- SeaWorld on wheels. Thank you. <laughs> and I want to start with, I mean... Professor Waldman, was he auditioning to be the next Alfred Pennyworth? Because he's the sneakiest of (laughs) all sneaky blokes. Like, I love that we're starting the beginning of this chapter at his place. And it's just like, people are still discovering the sneakiness of everything he's doing. He's hiding things in codes. He's he's hiding hidden uh, buttons on things. Uh, he's, He's not reading aloud any messages that you send me during this chat. He's just a sneaky, sneaky dude. And uh, I got to love his escape, uh, his escape hatches that they discovered that the cops couldn't discover the first time around. No, he, I mean, like, to be fair on the cops, like no disrespect to Housego and stuff, but are you expecting for there to be like a trap door and a giant tank? No. You know what I mean? Like there is that health. I remember this line in, I think it was the third, no, it was the fourth. I apologize. The fourth. Tomorrow When the War Began book by John Marsden. And there's a bit where they're like running away from soldiers. <laughs> Those books are bang up. But anyway, they're on horses Especially for some reason. One, and then they just like, they need to hide somewhere. So that, oh, really? I, I, I think the later, the later series is, you know, when they're blowing up airfields and like entire <laughs> military bases, that's when stuff gets interesting. The first book, they blow up a bridge and then you get to book eight and they're like, yeah, so anyway, we blew up an oil tanker in an airfield and you're like, fuck. Um, but that's like, that skill is incremental stakes. And then there's a whole book where it's like, they fuck up every mission and get really depressed and go to New Zealand and eat iced vovos and have regrettable sex. And I was like, Oh my God, say it. Um, but in that book, they hide in trees from soldiers. And there's this line that Ellie says about how human beings oftentimes don't see things that they don't expect to be there. So people will just look at things at eye line and maybe below sometimes, but often they're not looking above their own eye line. They just don't expect things to be up there, which I have learned from horror movies. Looking above your own eye line is exactly where Tony Collette's likely to be in the corner before she skits, skits, skitters away. Hereditary style. So, um, so... <laughs> as the kids would go so that's where I'm always looking but um when the cops are searched like they're already in a house with a a dead body Mm. more like marine animals than you could imagine huge empty tanks so much weird shit you're not looking for a secret trap door in a tank because also you're not thinking that anything was meant to be out you know what I mean like you just they're thinking from it again we talked about this a lot in the previous chapters using human perspective for inhuman situations and um, you know, they're normal people in a paranormal world and they're not adjusted to it yet. They haven't learned those lessons yet. The cops will never learn those lessons. Fucking cops. Um, But (laughs) Kaya and Cabby and Storm and Travis and Professor Waldman, the longer they're in that world, the more they know. And in Professor Waldman's case, the smarter he has to be. He's not supernatural like Amos. He's not um, anything paranormally skilled. What he is is super intelligent and super wise. Mm. And he has had a long time to live with the reality of Amos's existence and what also that means for the existence of other creatures like him. And who knows what else he discovered, right? We never find that out. So he is somebody who uses his cunning and wit to put other things into place. 
so yeah, he's a clever guy. And I just, I just like, again, we talk about, we've talked this chapter 13. So it's all coming to a head baby, but there's layering in of details. Like if we hadn't put in the groundwork early about Professor Waldman hiding his research or hiding his specimens or hiding his subjects or encrypting certain stuff or hiding keys at the bottom of the lake or hiding research or making certain things only viewable through their reaction to sea salt and stuff like that. If you got to chapter 13 and there's suddenly a trapdoor at the bottom of a tank, you'd be like, the fuck? But <laughs> because you've had 10 other examples of him doing stuff like this, it feels logical and it feels character-based rather than it just being a thing that needs to be there plot-wise because like how else the fuck do you get Amos into the lake? <laughs> you know? And the speed of this book and the economy of it, especially reading it again in direct preparation for these episodes that we've done, one thing that really struck me was also we've laid plenty of groundwork for his coding as well, like coded messages and all that sort of stuff. So your decision at, kind of early on in the chapter to be like a say our fears as the reader and Amos's and Kaya's of like Amos is going to find a way home you know like he's I've done all the research that I can that instinct should take over and I've done a stack of this research under the guise of you know legitimate research that he should find his way but I kind of already know through this coded stuff where he should be going and he will get there and I think the other decision for you to kind of like put that right out on front street is great because then it is literally just like, like, let's get this fucking fish man to water. Like, let's get him to water because it's all good. And then, and then you can just speed like hurtling, even though you're, you're, you're doing the 50 Ks an hour <laughs> along the uh, Gold Coast streets because you try not to attract any attention with the guys as they're beginning their escape to the water. Um, but I think that that's a really good decision, um, for, for, I guess, for the pacing of it. And I think that that's like, you kind of earned that, like, all right, let's get this, let's get this show on the road. You know, it's so funny in hindsight, I'm like, oh man, I really made the right call with that. But you just don't know at the yes. time, like yeah. creativity and creative work is truly like such a fucking, you know, it's, it's, it's like, <laughs> throwing drop point knives in the dark while blindfolded and the target's a baby, you know, like you're just hoping not to hit <laughs> something vital. But um, when I was thinking about it, I thought it would be really funny and tense for you to be rushing towards this conclusion and only being able to go 50 kilometers an hour through those fucking Gold Coast back streets where you know um, uh, every second, every second corner is a roundabout <laughs> like oh, it's everyone. a city with so many fucking roundabouts you're doing it at night you're trying to stay avoid and then I watched the first I remember when Lovecraft Country came out and the first episode which is truly one of the best pilots of anything I've ever seen it was really diminishing returns from there but that first pilot episode of Lovecraft Country they're in a sundown town and so they're trying to escape these racist police who are chasing them out of the town and if they're not out of the town and across the border by sundown they're going to get lynched right so you have these three black characters in this car racing to get out of town but and so they're racing against the sunset which you're watching but they can't go over 50 kilometers an hour or whatever (laughs) the speed limit is and I remember it just being the most intense like chase scene and like car set piece I'd seen in so long. And, um, and that came out in 2020 and this was written like 2014, 2015 thereabouts. So it's sometimes really nice to have your idea reinforced by somebody doing it better <laughs> <laughs> and somebody doing it with more well, historical context as well. Cause obviously this is set in Australia, not America, but um, you know, but the, sundown the, towns are pretty universal phenomenon. It's just like your concept got reinforced because that became the whole episode, right? Like when you're doing it an episodic way, you can just focus on that premise instead of you just kind of going, I'm going to do this because it makes sense for the Gold Coast, except me, someone who's listening to this, and I'm sure many of the listeners who now know, like anyone who's ever been on the Gold Coast, it is the most infuriating place. Like I reckon there's between 
my my wife's nana's place and this local cinema, which I tend to escape to in the night times. I reckon there's 40 roundabouts. Like, I'm not kidding. It's like so stupid. And it, it, like, it was such a vivid thing for I me. I truly reckon it. I'm such a good driver because I learned to drive in the Gold Coast <laughs> where everyone was A, a fucking idiot. Oh my God. And B, there were always more roadworks than actual road. So you just had to learn like really fast and really quick how to make that fucking shit work. Like you had literally no choice. So from sundown to towns to the sun threatening to come up, we arrive from a ute. We've found some more mysteries. We've learned that Amos is basically now via instinct or via Professor Waldman's uh, investigations and, and, and research that he's going to find his way. We're in the back of a ute. You know, uh, Kai is doing the traditional comforting him. The guys are driving along. We're, le- we're learning all about how, how these guys might have come up, how this Derek with his ponytail um, has come upon us. And then you just do this great image, beautiful black, big black SUVs blocking a bridge. It's so cool. Has to be black SUVs. Has to be black Has SUVs. To be. Has to be. It's so like, it's so on genre and on point, but you're like, yeah, fuck yeah. Black SUV, shit's getting real. You know how sometimes, like we were talking about in the last episode, how I just had them all dressed in black, the bad guys originally. And I was like, nah, that's such a cliche, bitch. Try harder, do better. Give him that Rain Rio plus Juliet, uh, Baz Luhrmann aesthetic when he still made things that were interesting. And, you know, sometimes you do have to work hard to avoid a cliche and it's for the best. And then other times, just fucking black SUVs. Like it was just a bunch of like, (laughs) you know, Ford Focuses assembled. It's not going to have the same oomph as a line of black SUVs. There's an Australian author named John Birmingham who once was talking about, you know, the appeal of Matthew Riley books and him loving those books. And he's an author in his own right. And he goes, sometimes people in my early writing career told me to run away from cliche. And he's like, when I find when I write like sci-fi thrillers, all I want to do is run towards them. Like I want to run towards those cliches with open arms because it's like, you know, they're there for a reason. They're really effective storytelling tools. And like the reader gets off on them too. Like if you do them in a clever way, like they totally pay off. And I think just for the image, there is nothing more out of place. I mean, I know now there's a lot of like soccer mums who ride around in black SUVs, but they're usually like white SUVs or different colors or whatever. But like there is nothing that would be weirder then if you went to that bridge on the Gold Coast and saw a line of all black uniform SUVs across it, like it would be way more likely that you saw a whole bunch of like hotted up, fast and the furious, like up to Tokyo drift cars, like lining up to race around the Gold nah, Coast. They, they're on this Southport, you know, they're Southport like Broadwater way. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like we're too close to Narang at this point. You're not getting any of that. That's where the hooning was always along Southport Broadwater around there. That's where the good shit happened on a Thursday night. But it's, it's interesting you bring out Matthew Riley because he was actually one of the first authors who gave me um, an opportunity in the industry and gave me really great advice. Like when I was, when I had the manuscripts for Who's Afraid and It Came From The Deep, he, we had met a few times just like through work, journalism shit and pop culture convention shit. And um, we met a few times over coffee and he gave me advice about the industry and he'd passed me on to some editors of his. But that was one of the big sort of takeaways and lasting things that he said to me because obviously we write very, very different books. I mean, his literally, <laughs> one of his books is a, um, nuclear modified killer whale that bites off the legs of a main character who's called Mama, who goes on to become like a legless Vasquez for all intents and purposes um, throughout the rest of that series. And, you know, <laughs> there's a heroine who gets her head chopped off and it falls into a shark pit. Like it's, it's some different stuff, but also like same, same, but different. Like he writes explosions that your dad love. I write explosions that your mom loves maybe, but he did say that, the, that's the one of the biggest strengths you have is about knowing genre and knowing the market that you're trying to sell to is that if you know it so well, you can subvert it. Mm. And in the case of, you know, the henchman outfits, for example, that's a subversion, whereas the SUVs is just a diversion straight into it, baby. <laughs> We're going to have some wild shit coming soon. So it's like, yeah, you recognize, you can just see it. You know what I mean? Like you can see them driving over the arch of that bridge on the edge of Narang and Southport 
and just thinking they've made it and the reader feels like they've made it. But, and then just that drop in your stomach as you come over the other side and see all the SUVs lined up and the poor fucking fisherman caught in between. And it just, I, I could see it as if I was there and I feel like it still comes across that way. Even when you listen to like Sophie read it um, in this chapter, if people are listening along or if you read it on the page, I just, I can see it. And I hope that it feels that visceral to people who are listening or reading it as well. There's a great moment here because they have to act extremely quickly and Kaya does something that is such a beautiful bit of tradecraft. It feels very much like your love of um, something like, even though it is completely false, zero dark 30 of someone getting out of the, out of the car and announcing the number of people um, to the police while she's calling the police on a, on a, on a mobile phone or, or uh, for American listeners on her cell phone um, um, while she's like there knowing that something's about to go down, but just knowing that, if she's making this call, she's at least putting a timer on how long that they have to face off against these, these other unknown forces, these bad guys, as, as simply as that. I just love that. It was a really great bit of tradecraft. Very you. And um, I know that it's sort of some of that stuff that's going to probably turn up in non-Supernatural Sisters uh, books in the future. Um, but it was just a really cool, like a little cool moment. You know what that is? That's less zero dark 30 and more teen girl shit because <laughs> only teen girls would be able to go through their contact list, hit dial, make sure that bitch is dialing and then be calling out key information all while maintaining unblinking eye contact with another person. You know, <laughs> like I, I feel like I've just seen teen girls do that thing so many times with a, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And their eyes are like boring into your soul, but their thumbs are just like flying over the fucking keys. That's teen girl shit. That's what that is, 100%. But it's it's a great moment there. And then it's just a hail of gunfire. Like, that's what I love. It's like, yes, let's get into action. We're not going to do any more talking. And But also you kind of can feel that it's bullshit gunfire. I, 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 know, I know that that's like a weird thing to say, but it's kind of cool because they're like, they're firing because they want them to like know that they mean business. But also we know that they don't want to, we feel like they don't really want to hurt Amos. Mm. They don't care about hurting the humans, no. but Amos is the money and he's the bag. You know what I mean? It's like your boys from heat breaking into the bank and then setting the money on fire. They just like, wouldn't do it. No. Like Heath Ledger's Joker would do it in heat 2.0, but these boys like, no, they're after the bag. They want to secure the bag. And so we get the great moment where, I mean, again, we've talked about Travis Tishop ad nauseum, but Derek as a bad guy's name is such... I mean, I feel like you have talked about Travis Tishop at nauseum. I'm like, oh. yeah, Travis Tishop, whatever. I love that that's the person you've zeroed in on. It's very I, uniquely you. I love him. I love him. But Derek is a good name because I think Derek has a different connotation for Australians than maybe other people. Because like Derek in like a US context, like you see him in like TV shows, I think in the UK, in the UK way, Derek, you're a Derek. Like it's, it's actually an insult to be a Derek. So I was just wondering, like when you named him very, very specifically, was it like this dueling context of, I know that sounds like, like an American henchman from a crime movie that I love and obsessed with like some like garbage crime movie, but also a Derek, like as in he's such a Derek, like of course he's going to fuck this entire mission up for his shady organisation. Classic Derek move. No, honestly, it's just I needed a broad sounding name and I needed something that wasn't, um, that I hadn't used before. Literally yeah. as simple as that. Like it just needed, it needed to feel right. Like it it had to be one of those names where like if it had been Pierre or something, I'd be like, <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't feel right in the context. You just have to like, you just got to try a few names out. And then see how that feels and then sure. come back to it. Like there was a character and I'm finishing off the finale of the Supernatural Sisters series at the moment. And there was a character that I had just put like all caps and name. Like I just written name as a placeholder because I was like, fuck it, I'll figure this out. And then I was re-watching Desert Heart, which is considered like you know, the greatest film, the greatest lesbian film ever made. I think it was actually the first mainstream Hollywood film to feature uh, two lesbians as the main characters and to feature a lesbian sex scene. But anyway, brilliant film, highly recommend um, from the 80s. But the main character in that is called Silver. And 
in almost any other contact context, Silva would just sound like such a fucking terrible name, but it worked so well for that character and that persona and that world that they're living in, like a, a Nevada in the fifties where women would flock to because it was one of the few States where you could get a legal divorce. So they would live in these sort of like divorce ranches, hashtag the dream and, um, and stay there until their divorces were finalized and then go back to where they lived. And, um, and in, as I was going back through the edits, I was just like, this character is a silver. And I had tried a few other names, but they hadn't fit. And it was like, yes, it's a wee bit of a homage to Desert Hearts, but it's also a Derek situation where you just like try a few different names. And it, if it doesn't feel right, you change it. Like even in The Witch Who Caught a Death, uh, the witch of said title, she's going under a pseudonym when Casper first meets her. She's going under a fake name. That fake name is Opal, but the real character's name is Carla Tully. But in the original draft, I had her fake name as Mickey. And I just like, I just love androgynous names like that, you know, like a Tommy Grayson, you know, a Billie Holiday. Um, those names that just, that, I don't know, there's just something about them. Like I just, I find those kinds of names really interesting a Ripley even obviously it's a last name but you know what I mean anyway so I had her name as Mickey because I just love that name and it was on my list of names that I have in my notes doc on my phone that we've spoken about before I'll just go in there every now now and again and fuck around and see what feels right at the time or try a different few names on and so the whole first like two or three drafts her name was Mickey and it just didn't feel right, but I left it because I'm a lazy piece of shit. And my editor was like, this is how I know, you know, she's a good editor and a boatman shout out, little brown. Um, she goes, does this feel right? And I was like, no, nah, it kind of doesn't. But I was, it was just one of those things. Like it's a, it's a super simple, like find and replace. Boom. It's done in two seconds. It's not like writing out a character you've just got, which is also something I had to do in that book. Oh, fucking kill me. Hated that. But it's just a simple find and replace done easy, whatever, just change the name. But I think I was resistant to it because I really love the name and I love it in theory, but in the context of that character and that story, it just didn't work. And so sometimes it's just like, it's exactly the same as clothes. You might see something and be like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's going to look dope <laughs> on me. And then you try it on and you're like, wow, so that's my gunt. And um, <laughs> suddenly I have 82 chins and it turns my two boobs into one uniboob. And this just wasn't the outfit for me. And that's okay. And you try something else fun or you just like go home. <laughs> Those are your options. Well, before you go home, we need you to talk about a couple of things. One is your next body horror moment. It's your only real body horror moment of the book, which is Kaya diving in front of in this, this like, book. Yeah. In, well, yeah. In this one um, where she dives in, because, you know, I think that's um, synonymous with you is a kind of like a very, I don't, I don't want to say casual because that's like it's unintended, but it's like it's just very matter of fact uh, body horror that comes in uh, with a whole bunch of other books in the series. But in this moment, it's a savior moment because Kaya dives in front um, of Amos taking this tracker beacon plug thing that is there as well as whatever the poison is that makes a metallic taste in her mouth. And you just have her like literally wretch it out of her body. And I remember reading it again, like in the last few hours, like just reading over a few specific things for, for this. And I was like, ugh, like that's very like, it's gross. Like, because especially you pairing it with the taste in the mouth. I don't know what it is about the, the pulling of the, the spear and then the immediate aftertaste. Just something about that is extremely visceral. The idea for that came from a very specific moment of just after I had had a TIA mini stroke for those playing at home. Um, they were trying to work out what caused my stroke because I don't have family history and didn't have any of the, like, you know, didn't smoke, all that kind of stuff. So didn't have any of the the things that you would usually expect somebody being, you know, 22 to have a stroke um, would have as indicators. And so one of the ways they look to find out what caused your stroke is um, once they establish it's, you know, there's two types of strokes, right? One of them is like an aneurysm essentially like on, on your brain, like a, a bleed. And then the other is like a buildup of pressure. So it's like 
pressure or like explosion pressure, if you wanted pressure. to make it real simple pressure <laughs> and the pressure one is usually like <clears throat> there's clots and they get caught like through a hole or a tear or something like that it's just like clogged pipes really but the sink is your brain and so when they're trying to work out when they were trying to work out whether that's what had caused my stroke or not they did this test, which they use for lots of different other medical ailments as well, but it's most commonly used for stroke where they inject you with dye and it makes you hot. <laughs> like it's so hard to explain, but you feel the dye, like you feel it and you can like, like you can like taste a metal, like they don't inject it in your mouth, but you can taste like a metallic taste in your mouth and you can feel the dye under your skin. Like it's not quite burning but it's like just a sort of you know one or two inch deep full body UTI maybe and they take like you do an MRI and like a full body scan and essentially they take photos and images of your body and film that stuff with the dye in your system so they can see what parts of your brain get the dye and if the dye goes to all of your brain then they know the flow's all good and then if it doesn't they know there's a clog or you know whatever there's a tear and so on and so forth but I remember that happening and just thinking it was like so weird and you could choose the dye color and I had purple hair at the time and they're like so do you want purple and I was like oh my god yeah I love purple they've got like we've got other colors too I was like no 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 let's do purple oh my god purple sounds amazing and the next minute you know I'm like oh my god this is really hot <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one of the bad guys in fucking Iron Man 3 and I'm about to shame black explode all over this bitch um but it was it's such a weird experience and so I was just like thinking about it if you're putting a tracker in somebody's blood um I feel like that's how it would be. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? That felt like a relatable personal experience for me. And I was just like, if you were just trying to describe how that would feel to somebody, I feel like that would be pretty authentic. So from an experience that's relatable to murdering a lead henchman uh, or a merman murdering a lead henchman and you getting into a car and reversing off of a bridge and ensuring that you're holding the seatbelt tight enough so that when you hit the water you and you submerge it's nice um we get to <laughs> it's never nice but it's, it's nice it's nice um it's we get kind of like the two climactic moments of the entire book Kyra underwater can't get out of a seatbelt Amos tears her out of the seatbelt essentially flies along um to a moment and they have this kiss that I just wanted to ask because I didn't think of it the first time that I read it, but it was a moment that it's this kind of, you know, obviously unrequited love. It's never going to happen, but it's really nice for them in this moment to share it. The way you write this kiss that seems to take an eternity, does merman or mermagic or the law of merman, like have a time altering thing with kisses? Because I just wonder if I just wonder if like the lore of merman, like when you think about how like hypnotic they are to the opposite sex or to the same sex or whatever, whoever they're hypnotizing, it just feels like they would make you feel like you were out of body and out of time. And so in that moment, I was like, Oh, this is like a beautiful moment. But I was like, shit is like, has Maria like laid a time bomb for a later book where merman have like maybe some time altering capabilities in their kiss magic or something like I don't know I just thought I would ask the question it was a bit of a weird one but something that felt really resonant on the last read nothing has clear more clearly indicated to me that you're the father of a four-year-old daughter than is his kiss magic I was just wondering <laughs> like that's such just like a beautiful kind of like fantastical whimsical statement that might I feel like I might have seen a very similar plot point in the Barbie animated series I would often watch with your daughter. <laughs> but no is the short answer. There's no like Chris Nolan tenanting of the kiss, right? Yes. But that thing that you mentioned um, about it, I mean, it's a bittersweet ending and this is supposed to be a twist on classic fairy tales and classic fairy tales not the remakes or the reboot or boots or the revised versions but the classics that hand christian anderson's where everyone's like fucking losing their feet and it's just a, like a real grim time 
they always did have a bittersweet ending. Like there was, the story came to a definitive conclusion and that wasn't always happy and it wasn't always sad. There were like good parts of it and bad parts of it. And in this particular instance, like this is the, their first real moment of combined emotional and physical intimacy. You could say they've had kinds of physical intimacy before by the way he's like yay let's go like yeet ourselves out of the water and stuff or the way he's protected her by like throwing his body in front of hers or like drowning two South Africans casually and they've had emotional intimacy in the way that they have spoken to each other and shared things with each other and talked to each other about each other and then also talk to other people about each other and you know just the way when you're falling for somebody that they stay on your mind but this is the first instance where it's a combination of the two. And the fact that it's also the, la- the first and last instance simultaneously is that bittersweetness that I was trying to lean hard into. I mean, the flying off the bridge and the guns and the SUVs and all that is our big epic like showdown finale moment. And then if it had just like fucked off and it had ended there, I think it would have felt unsatisfying. Yeah. And because there's not every string tied up in a perfect bow, you need to make sure the things that are tied up feel pretty resolute. And that's what that was supposed to be. I wanted to feel like Kaya got that moment. I wanted Amos to have that moment. And I wanted the readers to have that moment as well. And then... We get the free willy moment, except unlike Benicio del Toro, who literally got his mer dick out. Um, you fly Amos through the air in this great, like perfect punctuation. As you said, he's yeeting himself out of there, knowing how much it means to Kaya for him to yeet off into the sunset. I'm sorry, into the sunrise rather. Um, this really cool moment where it's just like, yes, he's going. It's they can't catch him. And, you know, as the tracker poison is coursing away through her body, even the final, like, please, you know, I'll stay close to the coast for you. It's like, no, you're going to get tracked. It's all, it's, it's all impossible. And you just at least give the, the reader a little bit more of like, it's even more impossible that they can't do it. And then off they go. Off they go. Off they go. And again, like the, the free willing moment happens at Southport Seaway, which is obviously like, a real place and just as you've heard on this show as as you've heard on this show fucking heap of deer down there heap of deer (laughs) oh mate so many deer now they're not at the seaway wall but they're like in and around there basically poor trevor the deer the 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 second edition of this book that it'll eventually come out i want to fucking as he yeeted himself it's not going to be like some graceful wording it's as he yeeted himself over trevor the deer um, you know, Kaya could see the silhouette of his meaty merdick. <laughs> you in just the see the silhouette. <laughs> you see the silhouette of the antlers, like just sticking up, like jaws shit. You know what I mean? Oh. No, um, it, it's Southport Seaway, real place, but like it's same sort of thing. Like that bridge is a fake bridge, but a real river. In the same way, so many places in the book combine real places with like fake specifics or um, fake places with real specifics and vice versa. But it is supposed to be that epic finale. You know, I always kind of imagine how you would like, I also, it sounds stupid, but I can't help because just like you're different in the same way, journalism skills and, you know, primary sourcing and just calling fucking people up to asking questions when you don't know the answers to things. Uh, my journalism skills bleeding into my fiction storytelling. It's also like that with other jobs that I've had and things that I work, whether that's like curatorial stuff from film museum world, working its way into the books or like the movie choices of Amos or um, the movie choices and other stories and setting things in old Hollywood, like the Rose Daughter, but also from like a film and television perspective, I'm always thinking about like, how would you practically shoot it? Which isn't even my job as a screenwriter, but it is just something like I can't help but think about. And so I'm always like sort of seeing that in my mind at the same time. It's like, you know, the more you've reviewed films, you like, you know, this is a film reviewer. You start seeing things differently and even like your favorite movies that you loved before you understood how movie making worked, 
they take on a new perspective and a new view. And it's the same with writing as well. Like I'm not necessarily thinking about like how I would put this in a script or where I'd position this, but I am thinking about it as if the reader is the viewer and they are watching the events unfold so that hopefully it feels like people are physically in it and from things that I've heard from people like that is is one of the reason they oftentimes connect with extremely outlandish and stupid shit in my stories because <laughs> I can put them in the action through through the viewpoint basically yeah look I, I think that's a that's a credit to this one is um, and why it's been so fun for me to be your co-host and uh, co-pilot on this project is because I just genuinely think you pair such, you know, really like time, time and space travel specificity of what the Gold Coast is with these glorious fucking body horror, like sci-fi fantasy, like merman flying through the air, like, shit and that's exactly this whole chapter that's that's exactly all the things i want when i'm reading but isn't that like all of our favorite like i'm just making this super personal sorry listeners but like for all the things that you and i love like movies tv shows whatever isn't that one of the things mutually we're both extremely attracted to from a storytelling perspective like we love true detective because it's so fucking specific to not just like the South, but like a, like a socioeconomic bracket of the South, you know, true blood feels the way it feels because it, I'm just fucking picking things from the South apparently, <laughs> but um, because it is so Southern and swampy. And then why does true detective season two not feel as good or not work as much because it just feels so broad. It's just fucking LA. And how many times have we seen LA? But when Michael Mann does LA with hate, it feels specific again. Like it's that person's viewpoint and it's the, the lived experience feeling authentic and informing it in the same way that I know the early drafts of books that I've written. Well, let's say who's afraid, for example, because who's afraid was originally set on the Gold Coast before per Matthew Riley's advice, I moved it to set it in, um, a foreign country, like a country that wasn't Australia because publishers found local publishers hate anything that's Australian because they hate <laughs> Australia genre and they have a massive case of cultural cringe. I want to smash, I want to smash my head against the microphone. <laughs> I mean, you know it's true, bitch. But um, international publishers, and this isn't the case anymore, but at the time, which this is 2013 2014 keep in mind international publishers found australia too inaccessible this was before candace fox really breaking through with her many many amazing crime novels this is before well not before but like lily um what's leanne moriarty's books hadn't hit new york times bestseller lists yet jane harper's the dry i mean things that were set in australia that sold outside of australia were quite rare right so he suggested setting in a different country I chose Dundee in Scotland because of so many different things about it, the weird history, the geographical location, all of that. But I actually went to Dundee. The draft that I had. I had was there and wrote, he's afraid, <laughs> took photos. That's good. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. But I remember when the movie Byzantium came out, I, arguably Neil Jordan's masterpiece for me. Feminist vampire classic. If you've never seen it, you have such a treat in store for you. Social Ronan and Gemma Arderton, go check it out. But anyway, it's set in Hastings, which is just like very fucking specific, kind of derelict and abandoned summer holiday town on the coast of England that is where like one of England's great battles was fought <laughs> back in the 1400s. But it's also just like, why would you go there? You know what I mean? Like it's one of those places. It's not like Brighton or Bath that is like really enjoyed as a, as a tourist destination. It is just like Hastings is like the town that time forgot. And I remember going there and feeling so excited because that's where Byzantium was set. And I was like, Oh my God. And I was like taking selfies and shit in the spot <laughs> where Gemma Arterton as a sex worker decapitates a dude once she becomes a vampire. And I was like, fuck yeah. And it's so random when those very like specific places mean something really cool to you and nobody else gets it. So just the image of you guys running around Dundee on your honeymoon makes me so happy. But the draft of Who's Afraid that I had, I had 
already had a draft set on the Gold Coast, changed it to be set in Dundee. And then I went and lived in Dundee for several months to really get a feel for the place, do my proper research, make sure that it was accurate to the place and the people and that it also felt authentic on the page. And just the difference between those two drafts was colossal. Now, when I set books places, I have been there. Like it just was one of those examples of like, I had done all my research. I had analyzed census data. I had interviewed people from Dundee. I had all done all of that before I got there, but just walking the streets and being in the place and feeling the place and smelling the place was just different. And Boss Castle for The Witch Who Caught a Death, again, like another very specific place And Berlin is in The Witch Who Caught a Death and just like Latvia for a wee bit for my Latvian homies who love <laughs> book, my books apparently, which is so interesting to me. Um, but The Rose Daughter like is set in specific parts of LA and specific parts of Scotland and specific parts of Australia. And I think um, The Wailing Woman is really kind of poignant because it is sort of a book that's like both a love letter and a hate letter to Sydney as a city because Sydney's a city that you can't just love you have to hate it simultaneously because the things about it that are so <laughs> are so the things about it that are great are so great but the things about it that suck fucking suck they do. the traffic the tolls all that kind of shit so those places feel like characters and I know that's such a cliche when people when people are like with this new fucking sex in the city series they're doing and they're like the fourth character will be New York City <laughs> New York City Samantha guys woo and the you're fourth like fourth character on. will be paid product placement you fucking sex in the city fuck sex in the city I, I couldn't okay. I that couldn't, feels extremely I, sexist but I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't hate it any more than anything I don't know the quality of the show all I know is that Deadwood didn't have any Manola Blonics and they cancelled it and Sex and the City ran for a few more shitty seasons before two shitty yeah and you know what if Sex and the City hadn't made as much money as it had you wouldn't have gotten your precious fucking true detective my guy <laughs> so let's walk back the Sex and the City because <laughs> no, that show has been making money for that station for so long also you love messy bitches you would love the show <laughs> I, I guarantee you if we started you on season one I'd come back a day later and i'll be like how's it going blake and you'd be like shut up i'm on season 82 <laughs> and you'd just be wide-eyed no, 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 no. downing fucking like those chocolate raspberries and just absolutely having the time of your life <laughs> um can i just read out really quickly a message that i got on instagram last week uh absolutely from not. a friend of mine. go on <laughs> No, I thought you'd really like this. I thought this would be right up your alley. Um, So this is from Melissa Palalagi and she sent through this message that said, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed. It came from the deep. I stumbled across your tweet uh, where you've been posting chapters on Spotify and because you'd only posted up to chapter 12 at the time, I bought the book to finish it. I loved it. I read the end about six times and was a bawling mess. The part where Kaya and Amos kiss and then say goodbye. I also then ended up on a Google rabbit hole to see if merfolk were real. And then I discovered that gay men like dressing up as them and doing photo shoots. Anyway, you're the best. Okay, bye. Which I love so much because as we've talked about earlier, the gay merman culture is strong. Strong. It's very present. It's like the, the Venn diagram of gay merman culture and bears is like almost just a complete circle and I love that and it is true one of the things like if you just google merman straight away 80% of the content you're going to see is 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 curated for gay men like it's honestly so fucking hot and so great you just love to see it but um (laughs) Melissa's message just made me so happy and I wanted to read it because it's so specific to this chapter and it was just like really no, nice. Like this is why we did this. Is we wanted to put it out for free for people. So folks who maybe hadn't had an opportunity to read or, you know, learn about the book or the story before could access it. And um, it's just nice when you hear from people who are enjoying it. And that is so awesome. And Melissa, even better, as we predicted, was you know, I've had a few cliffhanger moments, but she like binge clearly binge listened to every chapter of the sh- of every chapter so far, and was like, "You motherfuckers, I am not waiting another week." And I 
cannot get enough of that. I, I feel so it. bad that she bought the book. For- <laughs> one chapter. We're up to chapter 12. She- no, one chapter in a fucking epilogue. epilogue I'm yeah. like, oh, babe. I yeah, feel but, so bad. I'm like, sorry. Uh, it's good. It's. I think that that's the best. That's the best story. That's the best message. It's. Thank you for the two dollars I made. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's. It is truly the best message. She like. It just really made me happy, and um, and I love it so much. I met Melissa at Oz Comic Con a few years back. Um, she's super tight with Mikhail Malapula, the bloody Samoan. If anybody knows him for his wrestling work or his animation work, he does such, such, such incredible work in both. It's like, though none of those fields seem like they should intersect, but then you meet him <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Bloody Samoan. Okay. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Um, the biggest karaoke fan in the world. I'll throw up some links to his stuff. Um, but he's, he's done some incredible books about, uh, like traditional creation myths. And he's done a really amazing one on, uh, Samoan heroes, including Savage and The Rock. <laughs> like <laughs> it truly is like a biographical illustrated book on just like every legend ever to the culture. Um, but yeah, no, that message just like really tickled me pink and I thought you would enjoy it. It's so great. Well, look, you know, um, in, in, we've spoken a lot about True Detective in the last few moments, so I feel like saying, you know, bears are a flat circle when it comes to Merman. We'll catch you on the episode <laughs> that is the final episode of this series, the epilogue episode of It Came From The Deep. And uh, it's it's been so fun talking to you again. Maz, was there any last messages after that lovely message that you wanted to say before we, before we uh, yeet ourselves into the air and uh, out the Southport Seaway? Let's go, Willie, go. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe and share with your mermates.